0: Obviously, I don't think like people could squirt across the room. <laughs> this episode of the Oral History Podcast is sponsored by the Booklist Reader, a blog offering opinion, news, and lists from the book dorks at Booklist Magazine and Booklist Online. Regular features include webcomic Wednesdays, experts take on web comics you really need to be reading, book trailer Thursdays, and all sorts of stuff for every other day of the week, too. You'll find it all at booklistreader.com. <laughs> Hey, Krista, what are you reading right now? I just finished reading Gail Polisner's The Memory of Things, which comes out in uh, 2016. It's absolutely excellent, gorgeous, gorgeous. Um, And now I'm actually uh, reading a bunch of submissions from my romance editor day job uh, that I can't say out loud because they're submissions, but um, I'm trying to catch up sort of before the end of the year on a lot of submissions. So Sexy Romance, what are you reading? (laughs) Dirty um, <laughs> books. I'm
1: reading dirty books. What are you reading, Carrie? Um, well, I just finished reading. I did a reread of uh, The Spy Master's Lady by Joanne nice. Bourne.
0: Talking I about lo- dirty books. Like, good
1: job. Yeah. I love her. And then I also reread Rogue Spy because that hero is a virgin. And it's Ugh. super duper. Um, so I just finished rereading those for the 99th time. And now I'm reading An Ember in the Ashes by Sabata here, which uh, is super. It
0: is good. Juicy. Yes. What a good, good book. Yeah. I mean, super, just researched and smart and, yeah, all good things happening with well, that. Well, and
1: I've been off my fantasy young adult game. Haven't read a ton of it lately. And um, I just really wanted to just jump into that. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know we got we got to figure out if we can do a fantasy, a sex and fantasy thing coming up. We well, I, I gotta get I gotta really step up to mine because I'm sort of Ray Carson exclusive right now, so I need to open my <laughs> fantasy game up a little a little wider. I think
1: the fantasy writers need to write more
0: sex in their books. Well, hint, I, I can't hint. even, yeah, I can't even speak to that though, frankly, because I'm not reading enough fantasy. So, um, Kate Johnston gave me a very long list of books that I should be reading that have good fantasy sex. I okay. mean, sex in the fantasy realm. So <laughs> I just gotta get it. Well, they all have good fantasy sex. Okay. Um, before we get started, We've got some announcements. Uh, First, we're still collecting flash fiction for our Is This TMI feature, where listeners write stories, either true or false, about various topics um, that involve, you know, TMI. Uh, our inaugural topic was illicit relationships. So if you have a juicy story on that score or on any juicy story that you want us to consider, then send it to us at feedback at com.
1: Also, we're planning our 2016 schedule, and we have a lot of good stuff in the works, but we're really always open to your book recommendations and topic suggestions. We've gotten several emails from librarians that have been so helpful because they've come up with topics and books that would match those topics, and those are the best ever. So um, send us, again, same email. Let us know what you'd like to see in 2016.
0: Yeah. Plus, in February, we'll be doing our second annual Right Ladyhead Right Challenge. Um Last year, if you recall, we talked about it on Twitter, and it ended up with seven great submissions on the topic of female-focused oral sex, <laughs> a.k.a. <laughs> ladyhead, um, or dialing O on the pink telephone, Um <laughs> this year we're putting together an entire Tumblr that you can submit your work to. So I am just am so excited to see how that turns out. Um, so watch for that in the new year. And if
1: you'd like to read last year's Right Ladyhead Right stories, we keep them at our main site, www.theoralhistorypodcast.com. You can collect them all there. Um, And they are all so different and fun. Um, I absolutely adore that whole concept and it came out really wonderful. Yes,
0: it was seven really great ones. A great. Okay, so should we do the regular show then? Yeah, because we've been just talking. I feel like we're like beginning announcements at church. (laughs) Fill out your red pew pad. Um, I know, because that's just like what today's topic is going (laughs) to be. Yeah. So we have lots to cover today, mainly um, because we're doing uh, something a little different than what we normally do. Um, Today, we're going to discuss some books that that were highly influential on us when it came to our own thinking about sex and who we are as people in the world. Um, when you say that's kind of what we're covering today, yeah, Kim? yeah,
1: it's sort of you know, the the books that we sort of imprinted on when we're our sexual coming of age was
0: in, in full, full flower. Oh my god, did <laughs> you just so say that's so gross? That's so Isn't that gross. Super gross. <laughs> You're the worst. Yuck. Um, yeah, uh, yes, that's that's pretty much, and um. Uh, and some of these titles are instrumental in our thinking about sex and feminism and politics and all sorts of things. Um, and we both had really a long list of things that we edited down um, so that we have three nonfiction titles and one fiction title each. Does that? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's how how we ended up netting out, right? So do you want me to start? Um, would you like to start? I, I will start. <laughs> okay, go go. Um, so the first
1: book I would pick, and th- I'm really any book by Susie Bright is a good place to start. Um, I didn't read Susie Bright until I was in maybe my late twenties, so it's not formative years, but she is just one of the best thinkers about sex in the United States. Ever, um, and one book I would recommend people start with is one called Full Exposure, where it's basically a kind of what she says in the preface of a, a roll-your-own sexual manifesto, uh, man, manifesto. Sorry, and um, it's really a, just a collection of essays about how you think about your own sexual life, and she's very funny. She's very political. It's just a really beautiful book. And generally, Susie Bright is just a really interesting figure. She's bisexual. Her first sexual experiences were with both a man and a woman in the same bed. Um, so her, she was sort of imprinted herself um, in that respect. And uh, I really, really like reading her. And she's kind of a gateway to a lot of other really thoughtful uh, people who write and think about sex. Um, so full exposure and it, it's a beautiful cover. It looks like it's like a, it, it's got a boob with a nipple as a flower.
0: <laughs> on the Speaking cover. of flowering, there you I, go. I that know, is super
1: um, gross. But anyway, Susie Bright, and she also has a podcast that you, um, can get through audible.com called In Bed with Susie Bright. And I listened to that religiously, um, when Matilda was a little girl and it's just absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah.
0: Oh, she is wonderful. I mean, did I ever tell you about my, that? do you know that Susie Bright went to Grinnell College? Mm-hmm. She was like one of the speakers. I feel like Susie Bright introduced me to so many things in my life. I can't even tell you. Um, but one of the things was she was a speaker and my God, even the way that she came onto the stage and there was this podium and she was wearing this short black skirt and like, I don't know, nylons and whatever. And she so, like sat at the podium with both legs on both sides of it. Like she was like, straddling the podium as she spoke and everything about her was just super hot in this way that that just was awesome. I mean, she was so interesting and her conversations were really funny and I mean, she talked about everything. She talked about group sex and she talked about, you know, I, like bisting and like anything. I just felt like it was so wonderful and one of the things about her um I mean, Carrie, you did a lot of gender and women's studies classes too when you were in college, as as did I. And one of the things that I really remember uh, about uh, you know the the pornography debate that everyone gets into in, right. in, in in their intro to gender and women's studies class, I remember thinking like not really knowing how I felt about the whole thing uh, until I really listened to her talk about it and talk about on our backs and um, which was like a her own. Sort of female centered um, pornography, like On Our Backs, was a zine. Was it a zine originally? It was like a, it was like a journal.
1: I guess it was like the, the first lesbian porn that you could buy through the mail. So yeah. They had a lot of trouble so, uh, sending it through the mail because of, of obscenity codes, actually. But I mean, that photography is amazing. She's been a part of lots of different um, photography. Also, uh, for the lesbian gaze is a big thing that she discusses because uh, one of her friends, Honey Lee Cottrell, was a a lesbian photographer who took a lot of amazing pictures of women in the Bay Area and all over the world. And I mean, basically, Susie Bright is about women and their own sexual self-interest. It doesn't matter about the other person or the gains that you would make socially. It's about understanding your own sexual self-interest and why that matters and why that changes the timbre of every conversation. Um, And she's just brilliant. And I recommend, like, basically for my kid, I have a collection of Susie Bright books and um, a whole bunch of other things that I've set aside for her that uh, Carol Queen books for her to just look at and yeah, you know, one day.
0: Yeah. One day when you're perusing through this. Yeah, you know what? I, it's funny cuz I think I read um we'll get to one of the books that's on my list in a second, but I think I read um Susie Sexverts Lesbian or Guide to Lesbian Sex like fairly early on in my college life and it was so fascinating on lots of different things and I feel like anyone who especially who are authors who are maybe writing in you know this experience. If they haven't had that experience, that feels like sort of a primer in a lot of ways about understanding how all of that works and how it's different and how you know all of those things. I felt like I loved that book. I thought it was really smart. Um, and then I also remember some some edition of On Our Backs, where my God, this is so crazy. But I was so envious at the same time. Was it was like somewhat It was shots of like a woman doing having female ejection ejectu- ejaculation where she was like squirting across the whole room. I was like, holy (laughs) shit, how can you even like possibly do this? Um, and it was the craziest thing, but I also, it made me go like, oh my God, can our bodies do that? And not everyone can, obviously, I don't think like people could squirt across the room, but even like the whole idea of it was just super fascinating to me. I mean, I when I was younger I got to. I read Susie Bright earlier than you did, but when I was younger, I would just absorb that and think like, "This is just possible. All these things are possible that I never thought." Were, were possible with my own body, which I guess maybe should lead into my book. Um, one well, of my let, let me yeah, just add one for, more yeah. thing.
1: Susie Bright has an e-book that I believe you can get on Amazon, um, which is her, her daughter, Aretha. They do mother-daughter sex advice. So if you've ever, like, reading, like, sex advice columns or if you're looking for something to guide you as you talk about sex with your kids – check that out. I kn- I think it's only an ebook, but it's wonderful. And It um, is. And they yeah. have
0: a really interesting like boundary lines that they draw am- uh, between each other. And I remember her re- reading like a blog that she had written about um You know that she doesn't. She's not. She doesn't want to hear all the juicy details of her daughter's sex life. She wants them to have open conversations about sex, but she doesn't need all that, and her daughter doesn't need all that information from her. Like it was. It's so such an interesting thing because you would think like, what is it like having Susie Bright as a mother? But they really (laughs) have really interesting boundaries around what they will cross into each other's world, even though they'll both talk about this, right? Um, which is yeah, it's for sure good. Um, okay, so my book was um, that I feel like I don't know if I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little out of order in terms of age things uh, of when I read these different books, but I feel like it, I'm I would be remiss not to talk about the importance of Natalie Anger's um, "Woman and in Intimate Geography" as. A, I guess I I read it when I was younger, um, maybe like 16 or 17, um, maybe after that. I don't know. Um, But I I remember thinking, even as I read it, like, huh, it works that way. My body does this. I mean, I I think all of these books that um, we're talking about, were important at least mine were important at the time that I read them like now it's a no brainer I know all of those things I know how I work physically I've been with a partner for a long time all of those things now have factored in but when I when I first read woman I you know all of those things that you had already read in Cosmo and you weren't sure about were sort of either locked down or um or verified by woman. I mean, it's it really digs into every part of the female anatomy. Um, you know how Cosmo every once in a while will will like revisit the is there really a G spot kind of thing. <laughs> well, I feel like anyone. Yeah, I mean, it's like you know, it's almost like their Co- Cosmo is pulling out of the archives. They're like, yeah, we're a little light on stories this month. Let's pull that G spot thing out again. It's evergreen. Uh, yep, it is. It's an evergreen story. Um, but I feel like anyone who's read. Um, uh, woman and in intimate geography knows what the sort of the anatomy of that, the bundle of nerves, the connection to the clitoris, like all of those different things and how that works. Um, and I really liked that. Um, I, I, here is in in doing a reread, because I did a reread of some of these. Um, here's the deficits of that book, because I want to acknowledge the deficits of that book. Um One is it's very sort of cishet specific. Um, It talks a lot about, um, I think, a little bit about politics between men and women, but also to... um, It it seems like it's geared towards, um, there was a part of me, even as I was reading it, that felt like it was geared towards like women in a circle who were like looking at their vaginas for their first time with the mirror. (laughs) You know, like I even as I was like, like, it was a little, I mean, it's really scientifically excellent, but her prose in there is a little bit, I, I, I guess I would say dated or it's really geared towards people who, you know, haven't like dug around in there and felt things and known things. and and just don't have the internet really. Right. Um, so I think that there, I would say that I also think that um, there's, there's no, you know, there's no uh, accounting for um, at least the version I have is n- there's no accounting for transgender people. Um, so there's not that, which I think would be super fascinating if they did. I don't know if she's added a new chapter, but it would be really fascinating to talk when about. Did the
1: original come out it was like the late nineties, right? Yeah.
0: I want to think so. Yeah. So, Um, yeah.
1: What's funny to me, I mean, I think it's, it's, I agree with you. I think it's still a really good book. And I think there's even some debate in there about women taking hormone replacement therapy and how that works. And I think some of the science has changed since that. But, like, it's hilarious to me (laughs) that, I mean, we're still sitting here wondering about the G-spot. Like, you know, we haven't plundered all sorts of vaginas all over online porn. Like, you could probably go up there and look, y'all. It, it's like, yeah, it's a no mystery. Kidding. Like, it's a sunken ship, you know, like, we can't <laughs> actually find out. But I remember reading in Woman, super funny, Um, but it's, she says something like, a mighty 80,000 calories sustains a typical pregnancy. And I, I remember I read it before I was even anywhere near wanting to be pregnant, and thinking, holy shit, you know, the, the work that your body has to do is just amazing. And I think that part of it is so valuable because it talks about how you are a different kind of creature in, in that instance. And it's really interesting. So, but you're right about it being before we really had a a wider view of what gender is. Um, Yeah. So,
0: yeah, and and also too, I think a, a wider view of uh, a, a lot of different things about uh, just you know, like it, it's pretty white as a book. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like there, there's just a lot of things. There's not. I, I, there was just moments where I was like, hmm, I don't know about this. Um, but at the time that I read it, I felt felt like it was really important for me um, because there. I think there was a, like a long time when I was younger where everything, nothing was feeling good anyway down there. So I wasn't aware of anything. Um, so I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't get my first vibrator or, you know, really spend a lot of time like considering masturbation until I was in college. Um, although I'll, I'll get to that in a second when we talk about um, Inga Musio's cunt. But um <laughs> the all of those things i feel like uh at the time that i read it 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 ended up feeling important and also it ended up m- making me feel like i had some more um control over my body than i had previously thought if that makes sense you right. know where where uh i felt like oh well you know i could do this or this feels interesting or um or even oh my body can do this and just it's one of those sort of knowledge as power kind of things where I felt like it was uh, at the time open the door for me to understand something and it's not so obtusely written that it feels like an anatomy text it's it's uh, accessible in a in a pretty good straightforward way. It's just one of those things that I would maybe, you know, give my 13-year-old and say, like, yeah, yeah figure yourself out here. Well, you she's know?
1: she's a really kind of elegant science writer, kind of like Diane Ackerman in The nat- Natural History of the Senses, and where you kind of get to learn about scientific things without having to do all the icky, dirty work of digging through journals <laughs> and unfiltered research. And I think, like, you know, that's fine. That's a great service for people. And it's a really good place to start, start. I think.
0: So. Yeah. And well, and then just to add to that too, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to me, like if more men read that book, how there wouldn't be such a baffling, like, I don't know what's going on down here. Like I just, right. there's a part of me that thinks that there's like this, this uh, even the the recurrence of the, is there really a G-spot articles. It, to me, I'm like, this is just perpetuating the idea that like the the pipes down there are super complicated for women and there's just no you know, no finding through going through the Bermuda triangle of the complexity (laughs) of the female body. And it's not that complex, you know? So I just, I I, want to be like, hey, dudes, read this book because, you know, like it's pretty A, B, C, here are your spots, here's what's going on. And and in a way that it it will no longer allow men in particular, the excuse to not understand the way that women's bodies work. Um and well, particularly is, if they're gonna continue to be lawmakers on our bodies. It would be nice right. if they had some some clues as to how that works.
1: Well and this is the main thing I think for men, heterosexual men and their failures in the sexual arena are, are largely because they focus on competence instead of curiosity. And they they just want to appear as if they already know something when everybody's body is on mapped territory. So why are you acting like you know that woman so well? You don't. So you got to be curious. Um, th- there's that. And then there's also that men are not socialized to have emotional intelligence. And that's, you know, 90% of the game is having emotional te- intelligence about where a woman is at a particular moment and being able to approach at a proper time. And, you know, that is... That is really the key to the sex stuff. The rest is just all a bunch of like, you know, like tap dance steps, you know, it's not that exciting or elaborate. It's really just not knowing how to do those two front things.
0: Yeah, Um, I agree. And I do think like sort of the bravado of like, I've got this, I'm bringing my game, I can do this (laughs) kind of thing is really, I mean, you're cock blocking your own self there, bros. Because, right. you know, the reality is if you've just spent some time like figuring it out and, and didn't feel like you, it was sort of a race to the finish, which it always seems to be um, in a lot of different ways that you could, you know, really have pleasure, you know, tenfold to probably what you're first going in with, you know. Curiosity, not competence. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay, this is my next book. It's maybe a little bit uh, predictable, but it is a collection of essays called Outrageous Acts and Everyday Rebellions by the uh eminent Gloria Steinem. Um I know there's a lot of people that are like, "Okay, bored with your white feminism, but I actually read that book as a young woman and was startled by a lot of the topics she brought up. That collection famously uh, features the I Was a Playboy Bunny expose, which made uh, Gloria Steinem quite notorious and famous, where she went undercover as a Playboy Bunny uh, server in one of Hugh Hefner's Playboy clubs, and how she reported on what that life was like for the women who did that job. And it was just an amazing, disgusting, horrifying portrait. Um, Yeah. Kind of
0: gynecological exams. I mean, Uh, God, just there's so much grossness in that whole scenario. I mean, it was a great essay. I do. I think they even made it into a movie. They did.
1: I I watched that too. Well, and it's also just an um, amount of bravery that I just think is so important if you're a a woman journalist. I mean, that's a a great point of... uh, Admiration and the famously, the book also has a, an essay called "If Men Could Menstruate," which is very funny. It's basically about how you know um, men would brag about how you have to <laughs> you have to give blood to take blood, and then he would use it as a way to justify war. and It's very very funny. A lot of people. Uh, look at Gloria Steinem as if she's this very dour, stern woman, but she's actually quite witty. And um, then there's also a really famous essay on erotica versus porn, which I didn't really, you know, I read it at the time and I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Even though I really didn't have a concept of what porn was, because those were back in the days where porn was on paper. Um, and I had not seen porn on video. Um, but she kind of talks about how erotica is about mutual pleasure and consent and that porn is really about domination. It's a really good essay to revisit now because the conversation about porn and erotica has moved in in our landscape so much. Um, I feel a lot more uh, convinced that porn isn't always about domination. Um, I think a lot of times porn is about sexual behavior that probably isn't that effective. But I don't know that it's always about domination. And if it is about domination, I think there's often consent involved. I guess just go read that essay if you're interested in the whole porn yeah, debate. But it's,
0: uh, yes, and uh, the thing is that it is is—it's uh, worth saying, it, it is dated. That essay is dated. It's funny because I have my copy of that book sitting right here um, and I have not yet read um, her newest book, My Life on the Road. Although I do understand um, I mean, she was here in Chicago with Roxane Gay and they talked a lot about um, just her experiences and, and her evolution as a feminist and um, it was really interesting just even trying to like bring in intersectional feminism and a lot of other things. Um, But what's fascinating about the sort of porn versus erotica conversation is how uh, erotica and erotic romance are defined in the romance world. Which I'm just going to give you a quick a quick editorial tutorial on this. Um, in if something is categorized, at least where I work, um, and I think probably among most romance writers, is something is categorized as erotica. It is um, books that involve sort of self discovery and um, they're sort of about an evolution of usually the heroine um, from you know some sort of a sexual awakening or evolution or something, figuring out something about herself. And it does not necessarily have to end with a happy ending. It doesn't have to be, um, she doesn't have to end up, you know, in some kind of menage situation, like nothing like that. It, it doesn't, it's not the level of dirtiness for that as so much as the intention is that it's a sort of a sexual journey. Um, and that's what's considered erotica. And then erotic romance um Oh, ha- has to have the the H E A, the happily ever after at the end, and so erotic romance is a romance that um, the sex is integral to the relationship and to the moving forward of the plot, but uh, the the ending has to have either a happily ever after or a happy for now, and so it's really interesting when you think about that about. What you would then think about in terms of erotica versus pornography, because then by that definition, erotica is not really necessarily about another person at all. You could say that erotica would be, you know, having a a woman who figures out how to make herself come and that could be erotica, you know?
1: Well, and I can't remember who said it. It was someone smarter than me who said it. I think maybe Dan Savage or maybe Susie Bright, which is that erotica is just porn you like and porn is the porn that gross people like <laughs> it's, yeah, right. and it's not really about like it's all in the eye of the beholder right you will you will call this the stuff that's sexy that turns you on erotica. Because it sounds classier. But, right. It's like uh, the
0: French version of porn. Right. Really.
1: And, and I feel like um, this is a good time to bring up the whole, if you are a woman who's like, I don't like porn. It's so gross. And there's too many pop-up ads. And there's neon colored font and whatever. Here's what you need to do. You need to get a Tumblr account. And you need to search the Tumblr tags until you find some porn that you like. Because guess what? People curate great gifts on Tumblr that you just see like one thing, like one act or one movement. And you don't have to look at all the rest of the garbage and you don't have to deal with the pop-up ads. And you they're often in nice tasteful black and white. So you don't have to see someone spray tan or rhinestone belly piercing or whatever the hell bugs you. And it is so much easier to stomach the porn that in that respect because you don't feel like you're going through this big you know, disgusting, sleazy commercial gauntlet to get at it. So, Tumblr porn, women, go I, investigate. I w-
0: yes. And I would also like to make a shout out to my porn friends, my people, my friends who are porn stars or in the sex work industry. And I would also say, pay for your porn, and you can avoid a lot of neon flashing and pop ups if you pay for your porn. <laughs> As opposed to like going on you Porn or wherever and, you know, fr- figuring it out there, um, it, you know, pay for your porn and then you get more pleasure out of the whole experience because it doesn't become such a gross. Um, well, yeah, flashy, it's usually in a you're, yes. you're,
1: you're objecting to the leather IKEA couch they're doing it on, or, you know, they're on somebody's gross back. with a hot tub and it's just giving you a big 70s vibe or you don't like how the bodies are shaved or, you know, whatever it is. It doesn't really have to do a lot of times with the actual sex that the people are having. But the other thing that you have to remember with porn is that it obviously is not real. These people are paid to perform sexually that is something not everybody can do and in, and do, they, a lot of people do it, you know, better than others, but whatever. It, it's obviously not real. It's it's um it's something to keep in mind. Erotica might be what happens in your own life, but porn is a kind of movie that's not life um yeah
0: and it's consumptive it's for consumption you know that's the that's the game plan of it there's no uh other real agenda beyond that Um, speaking
1: of porn you should do your next book
0: um, w- w- what is my next book? The Best of oh, American Oh, yes. Erotica. Okay. So my next book is, um, which, uh, is The Best of American Erotica. And, uh, why I wanted to talk about this book, the, 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 obviously they do the best of books all the time for, you know, short stories and, uh, poetry and all these different things. So the, but the very first one I read was the one that was edited by Susie Bright and I read it, um, and absolutely just loved it. I mean, what it was, I I guess for me, why I loved it so much is prior to that, I had been reading sort of those bodice ripper romance novels. And that, uh, the, the Susie Bright Best of American Erotica, the Susie Bright edited one, sort of opened the door to all this uh, realism and possibility and things in romance that weren't sort of, you know, virgin heroines and alpha heroes and, and just all of these different things for me that Made me go, oh, this is, you could write about sex this way. And I wanted to talk about this book in particular um, on this show because we talk a lot about writing about sex. And I feel like that was sort of a a seminal work for me in terms of seeing that you don't have to write about sex where there's, you know, clenching pussies or slick folds or (laughs) heaving bosoms or whatever, that you could write about sex. Gosh, there was this I just remember this story in there where it was about a girl and they were in college and she was on on spring break and and she was a bisexual girl who uh sort of announced that she couldn't come, that she wasn't able to have an orgasm with a partner. And there was this um cute sort of baby dyke who was like, "Yeah, give me uh like give me 20 minutes." <laughs> And she was like, what? And she's like, I can make you calm in 20 minutes or less, you know? And I would just remember, I'm probably even getting the story wrong, but I was so pleased with the whole thing. Because first of all, it was like at that time, like very real for me, you know, it didn't, I wasn't having orgasms with partners till way later, um, in my life because I, you know, as a rape survivor and everything else, I had a lot of baggage going on there. And so for me, um, I was just pleased. So super pleased with that story. Um, because I was like, oh, I wonder if you know, like, I, I I'm just getting this wrong. Maybe I just don't have the right partner. And it, it's the same thing where I I think what was so great about that book was there was such a smattering of different stories. So there was one where it was um like a wife who it was an anniversary kind of situation and her like her husband gifted her with letting her fuck some other dude. You know, which was I was like, <laughs> oh, what? But I just loved it because it was just all these different. Things or this guy who's like, you know, like this couple who had sex in the middle of like a, an outdoor concert and all of these different stories. And none of them, um, I mean, they were hot, but not really sleazy. Um, so that made it excellent too. But they, it was just, I guess it just made me say like, oh, this is what writing sex could be, and I think that I, I, I bet you if I read that, that I have not reread that particular book, but I bet you if I reread it, I would still be equally pleased with it because it was just such a wide expanse, and I think you would really need someone like Susie Bright to take that on and say like, yes, all of this is hot, and understand that whatever is hot to you is like that's what is hot to you, like that's what gets you off, and so that's important, and it's not necessary necessarily kink or anything else it's what you like and and that's important in in this conversation in the conversation about sex in general. So yeah thumbs way up. to the Well best and American there's rug. several
1: editions of those books oh, yeah. and I think the interesting part about reading them is is that not everything will appeal to you. It's really kind of like opening the window to seeing what other people do so you kind of get to sit on the bedpost of lots of strangers and, and see the kind of things that turn them on. Which isn't necessarily, you know, something, it's not going to always be a one-handed read, The Best American Erotica, but oh, it's no, always going to be illuminating, yes, you know. Um, yes, yes. I remember a similar book that, I i don't know, I was in a Barnes & Noble, back when, like, Barnes & Noble had, like, 60 titles per shelf instead of four, you know, and, and there was just this whole huge uh, thicket of books on a table, and I remember picking up this book called Leather Folk, which was uh, um, edited by Mark Thompson. It was a bunch of essays about people who had sort of radical sex and, you know, people that did um, – all sorts of uh, BDSM and stuff that I didn't even know what it was about. And I remember just sitting there, this is also back when Barnes and Noble had lots of chairs and reading the whole thing because I was like, holy shit, I know nothing about this. And it was super illuminating. I really, really like that book. And I think the thing people think about erotica is, oh, I'm going to read this and I'm going to be tastefully turned on with my partner. But really, I think they these are books that are let you see the whole world in a way that you
0: haven't seen it before. And I know. I, think that's I the love value. stuff like that, especially something that is a lifestyle that you probably will never get involved in. It's the same thing with um, what I like to watch on TV. It's, it's something that I will never know or I'll never be sort of on my, on my plate. And so I think, oh, what's this like? It's like learning about subcultures. You know, you look at yeah. it from an, an ethnographic sensibility and you think, what is it like having, you know, being part of the, the leather folk or, you know, being part of people who are, you know, just all these different things. I think that's fascinating.
1: Um, okay. Next book um, this is my last nonfiction title. It's called Harmful to Minors, the Perils of Protecting Children from Sex by Judith Levine. Um, this was a very controversial book. When it came out, it was published by the University of Minnesota Press, I believe. And people lost their ever-loving minds about it because in this book, Judith Levine is is advocating for people to educate their kids about sex Shocker. <gasps> oh, I know. No. Let go of the pearls, Krista. Yeah. Oh um, my gosh. So basically, Here we go. it talks about like all of the, the sort of um, harm we do children when we gloss over sex or avoid sex, and how we also have this f- huge fear that if we taught um, that children are going to be abducted and, you know, Raped and all of that kind of thing, and we've sort of overinflated that fear in our culture, and also what it means to um, uh, to not present sex as a thing that is done on the weekly and the daily, and act like it's this special weird thing, and how that changes us culturally. It's such a good book, and I feel like it's really a a book that you should have if you have children, um, because you probably aren't, you're probably going to say to yourself, oh, I'm going to be cool about this. I'm not going to be a square like my parents were. But actually, you're probably going to be kind of a square like your parents were. It is something you have to really work to unlearn. And this book provides a ton of Information and thought about how we view sex as a culture and how you basically have to resist and swim against the current all the time to undo how we look at it as a society. So, totally recommend this book. Judith Levine's a great reporter and journalist, um, and she's an excellent writer. And I believe in the most recent version, there's a foreword by Jocelyn Elders, who, if you recall, was one of the women that were supposed to be Attorney General, but because she advocated masturbation as a sexual alternative for kids, um, they couldn't confirm her because masturbation oh would make goodness. congressmen grow hair on their palms. or I, I don't fucking know. But anyway, Jocelyn Elders is an, an, also a, a wonderful figure
0: for this whole cause so harmful to minors check it out wow yeah i that i that's there's so much to unpack there whenever we talk about you know just the the shoddy sex ed in our country and all of these different things and and how people get anxious about it and you know um at the bookstore, I see that a lot still. I see people saying, like, well, does this one have sex in it? Ooh. You know, like, getting nervous about it. And I was like, what is it that you're afraid of? Are you afraid your kids are going to ask you a question that you can't answer? Like, do you think your kids don't think you've had sex before? Obviously, they know where babies came from. Like, what is the, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And, and I think we are, it's it's a huge disservice to um, not talk about sex, but it's also a huge disservice to not talk about um, the reality that everyone's like having sex. I mean, it's very funny because there are times when I'm even on like Twitter or something where I'm like, oh. would it be awkward if I talk about like having sex with Julio and then I was like surely everyone knows that we do I mean we've been (laughs) married 16 years like we're not you know and then I just think about like those things and of course it would be awkward for him because he would say like "Hmm, this is kind of our business but at the same time like just the reality or the normalization of that where you know I mean you and I were having this phone conversation yesterday where we were both like "God, you know a lot of cracks and in the, the foundation of marriage can be smoothed over by like regular sex. And why don't people talk about that? Like, they just, you know, like there's just times where I'm like, ah, God, if we do like, you know, let's just like, well, let's get laid and then like solve this later. And it totally works. And I hate to say that it totally works, but it does. And I think, you know, maybe not always, and I'm not advocating for not communicating, but I also feel like that's just something that it took me kind of a long time to figure out. And if people just yeah. had that conversation where they were like, eh, you know, like intimacy, connecting with people, like when you hit sort of a foundational level like that, it fixes some things that like then you can get past other stuff because then you can sort of con- communicate and figure out how you go in, whatever.
1: Right. Well, I mean, there's usually two problems with marriage. you guys need to get laid or you need to get paid. Like, there's just like money or sex. And I feel like the sex thing doesn't actually solve your problems, but it makes you treat the other person a little more, Kindly and tenderly and you give them a lot more forgiveness as you fix whatever bullshit came up. Um, And so that's why it's kind of a balm on the whole situation. And
0: also too, because it's a really great way to remember that you really like someone. Like, you're like, oh, yeah, I like it. I like when you touch me. I like when we're naked together. Like, all of those things where sometimes you forget that because you're just going through your day and you forget that. And then I'm like, oh, that's right. We really like being naked together. That's so fun. The other
1: thing is with In Harmful to Minors, which was the big uh, dust up about the whole thing, was that she was saying, essentially, that we should accept the fact that adolescents are sexual You know, sexually exploring them, their bodies and that they're sexually active and that this should be accepted as normal and something to not fight against. And I just think, like, that is such a no-shit Sherlock point, but the fact that people lost their damn minds, the fact that people go into the store and go, but does it have sex in it? I'm thinking, you know what, lady? You shot a baby out of your vagina, Right? Yeah. yeah. Into all sorts of blood and shit and gore. (laughs) That's the the most graphic, vivid thing I can think of. You went and did that. You know, I don't think you are under, you're underestimating yourself. You're underestimating your capacity to deal with complexity. And And this is, you know, I think this book provides you with a sort of perspective that will maybe give you the courage to get over some of the social um, learning you've picked up unconsciously. I think it's interesting, though, because Susie Bright's so open about sex, but she does have a really big boundary, and she's always saying – Close. Let your kids close the door. Let them have a private diary. Give them privacy. And nowadays, people are like, monitor your kid's Facebook account. Don't let them have Snapchat. Take their phone away and review all their texts and all of this kind of thing. And I just feel like, oh, Jesus. You know, like, again, here we are worried about this what sex could do to them. And we're panicking about it. We're not assuming that people are going to grow up and, and become sexually well adjusted. We're assuming the worst right away. And I don't think you have to start there. I'm not saying there aren't worries
0: and concerns, but you don't have to start there. So, Yeah. Well, and also just to add to that, particularly when it comes to kids that, um, Your kid could not be ready uh, to have sex or to be sexually active and still be super curious about it. And I think that we forget that part. So we even had, remember early on, we had a a listener who said something to us along the lines of, well, what about, you know, books where the girl doesn't want to have sex? And I think that. Oh, you mean every book that's really already out there?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fuck
0: ever. (laughs) Except for yours. No, where the girl, like, the, the reality, for the girl herself was oh, that oh. she didn't want to have sex. She wasn't interested in having sex. And, you know, cause that's not what she wanted. And, I think that we answered, I hopefully we answered at the time, like, even if it's not what you wanted, it doesn't mean that that's not what you're, you're curious about. I mean, I, I just don't believe that you can live, you know, in this world and get to a certain age and not at least be curious, even if you've decided that's not what I want or I want to be focused here or I want to, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in all of those other things. Like, surely you're curious about this. Um, Right. Which brings me to my next book, which is Cunt. Um, Inga, ah, Inga Musio's Cunt. This is Kant. a wonderful book. Um, this is a wonderful book. There's all sorts of great things about th- about this book. I think part of um, why I love this book, I mean, there's a million reasons to read this book. But part of why I really like it is, um, first of all, she does a lot of sort of kind of hippie, natural ways of doing things, which is fine. I didn't care about like that. Like abortions. Yeah. And, well, and also, too, like The Keeper or whatever they call those diva cops, you know, like all of that stuff, which is fine. But I didn't care about that, Um, which I mean, it's fine. It's a a good part to have if you're really into organic stuff Um, and all of those different natural remedies to understanding your body and and working through your body and all these different great things. But, um, what I loved about that book, first of all, is obviously she has a whole thing about the word Kant and giving words power and taking back that power and how, you know, all of these different ideas behind it, which are excellent, but she also has a whole thing about really, um, I feel like it's, I, I want to say it's like a happy book. And why I want to say it in that way in that she is really like into having a vagina. She's into, um, and I guess her newest edition apparently does a whole thing about transgender, which is awesome. She adds a whole new chapter on that. Um, but she's really into like the awesomeness of being, you know, having a vagina, having this be part of your body, all of these things. So you know, she like deconstructs a lot of the culture of fear and the whole, like, I don't know, I don't mess with down there or any of that. She like knocks yeah. that out of the park in terms of just saying, no, that's bullshit. Love your vagina. Be, you know, these are all the things about it that are wonderful. And she even has a whole thing about not re watching, um, things with rape in them not watching movies cuz she was like why do why would i watch that when you know that's just to me everything about it you know, is that it's troubling because either it's, you know, you don't really need it or if there's that scene in there, I feel like that's just hating my vagina more. And how much am I going to start internalizing that? And like, it's a super interesting, all of the stuff that she has going on in that book is great. But what I want to talk about, about that book that I loved was that she has this part where She's talking about, I think she's talking about masturbation, but what she's really talking about is just when you feel good, you know, from just rubbing yourself in your vagina. And she has this, she talks about this, um, driving her friends little, her, her, uh, her friends like little girl, maybe like three year old girl around and she's in one of those car seats and, um. She, and I think she says, oh no, she's not in the car seat. She's like moving her legs back and forth together. And she was like, it feels really good when I do this. And she just turns around <laughs> and she goes, yeah, I know it does. And it was so great. Cause it's like, um, and I, because I used to be, when I was little, this is my fun disclosure thing, when I was little, I was one of those table rubbers, you know, where I would like be on the edge of tables and rub my <laughs> junk on tables, on the corners of tables, because it felt so good. And I just didn't know when I was, and I remember always being like really shamed about it, about my parents being like, don't do that or, or whatever. And just feeling like, you know, I was constantly like, I think I called it like tickling myself. I was constantly tickling myself. And um, my, when I was really little and my parents like just locked it down. And then of course I was like sexually assaulted after that. So it doesn't really matter. But like after that. But prior to that, I just remember always really liking that feeling and then feeling ashamed about it. And I loved the part in Mm -hmm. um, Inga Musio's cunt where she says, like, yeah, it does feel good, doesn't it? And then she talks about, like, rubbing off on pillows and, like, all these different things. And I I feel like when I read that book, it was the first time where I let go of any shame ever around masturbation. So it's excellent for that purpose.
1: She – I mean, my sister used to deal with that with her little – Boys and she would, they would be like grabbing their junk and talking about how great it was. And she'd be like, That's fine, but you need to go do that in your bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> she would just tell them to go do it in their bedroom, not the living room where they're putting up the Christmas tree or whatever. <laughs> and so, like, I think that it's not like you have to sit down and talk to your four year old about masturbation. You just have to say, It's good that it feels good. Go ahead and do that in your bedroom, you know? And move on like um the other thing I love about cunt and then I like like her embrace of the word cunt because she's not talking solely about a vagina because the vagina is not really your sex organ it's the birth canal and so it's not really the point of it it's just this whole region is the cunt um and she talks also about like <laughs> just like Barreling ass into the car with your friends and taking a road trip to the nearest sex toy store if you don't have one in your city, and it was a sort of happy, excited celebration of of anything that's lady business. She was talking also about um, uh, how she had spent a couple, maybe a year or two, only reading books written by women and consuming media written by women. Um, And it was that's, you know, going on now, it's been revived in that Twitter thing, Ladies First, where people are uh, committing to only reading women uh, authors in the year 2016. So this kind of thing does, you have to rearrange your consciousness uh, about, you know, consuming, you know, (laughs) fashion magazines and all that kind of stuff. Um, And so she has a a lot in that book besides about your sexual self-interest. And it's just so much fun. I I remember getting that book and then loaning it out to everybody who I thought might be interested in it, and then having them write in the back their name and the date they wrote it. And it's got a whole bunch of names. And it's just a really cool book. I'm glad she updated it. Um, Yeah. Do you know I gave that book
0: to my editor? Isn't that hilarious? Yeah, because I I name drop it in Faultline. And my editor was like, is this a real book? And I was like, oh, my God, you have not read this book. And I sent it to her immediately. And she was like, everyone in the office has stopped by and asked me why I have a book called Kant on my desk. And I
1: was like, (laughs) I know, we're so fun. I remember in high school, or no, it was in college, one of my friends had a necklace that she made with with little letters that said Kant. She just wore that. And it was kind of in the riot girl time where you were trying to beat the uh beat the insulter to the punch by just writing on your arms whore or incest or you know, sluts, slut or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was super fun. But um Kant also uh is uh it's the, the subtitle is a declaration of independence, and so it's really about um a kind of feminism that is not about Anybody else but women. And mm-hmm. I think for uh, maybe some women today, that might be like, well, no kidding. But <laughs> uh, it was a revelation to me when I read it in my 20s. So Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's excellent. It's excellent. It's good fun. It's just a fun book. And it's one of those things that sort of reminds you, like, Oh yeah, yeah. She has it. Yeah, it's good things. What's all right, so are we at the fiction time? We're at the fiction time. Yeah.
1: Um, here's my fiction book. Um, and I just reread it recently. Um because it's referenced in another book I really liked, I just recently read, which is called Disgruntled by a Sally Solomon. Um, and in Disgruntled, it references uh, Tony Morrison's Song of Solomon, because in that book, Tony Morrison has this group of guys called the seven days, and they are men dedicated to what they call equalizing and um, justice for uh, black folk. Um, so if like a, a a black woman is murdered and raped on the day that they are murdered and raped. Um, then the the person on that day, if it happened on a Tuesday, the Tuesday man would go and find uh, a white woman and murder and rape her. Or same with you know, if a child was killed a black child was killed, they would find a white child and kill them. And so there was seven days of the week, and they would just do it based on the day of the death. And this was their way of sort of getting back and keeping um, the numbers in, mm-hmm. in check. And it's it's crazy. I don't actually know if that's based in any reality, but I remember reading it in Song of Solomon. And so I went back and reread it. And that book was so important to me. Um, I read it in high school, and then I read Sula and the Bluest Eye in college. Mm-hmm. And what I really like about Song of Solomon is that it deals with a lot of like sexual frustration and it deals with um, the kind of love that people can have, which makes them crazy. And Toni Morrison refers to that over and over like love that makes, that gives you a fever, love that makes women howl. Yes.
0: God, that book is so good. I mean, I, I yeah. love Beloved too. Beloved is excellent. But there's something about even from the very beginning with that milkman and all, oh, Everything about it, that book is magic. It's so the, good. The, the
1: main character is called Milkman because his mom has – is sort of loveless marriage with Milkman's dad. And she is seeking comfort and solace. And so she breastfeeds Milkman until he's like
0: – Eight, right? St-
1: yeah, he's a, he's a big kid. He's like standing up yeah. while he does it. And they're they're caught one day, someone sees them in the window and then from then on everyone's calling him Milkman and there's also a whole bunch of interesting stuff about the names that black folk give things in their community. Um it's such a good good solid book, but there's a the part I love is um the sister or the aunts of Milkman is a woman named Pilot. And she is this kind of singular figure who makes wine and lives in this shack with no electricity. And she lives with her daughter and granddaughter. And her granddaughter Hager falls in love with Milkman and she has like this sort of crazy... Uh, you know all-consuming love for him and he's sort of heartless and shitty about it and it's all from his point of view so you can I mean I'm reading it feeling for the women in the story obviously but it's all from his point of view so you're just like okay what's really going on here and it the the way that she does heterosexual relationships I actually wrote a paper on that in college and I'm a terrible academic writer so I would never want to revisit that right now but I remember thinking It was the same thing in in Sula and the Bluest Eye about how she treats the heterosexual relationships and how complex they are in the black community. And, you know, in general, I remember the best thing about um, the, the thing that sticks out the most is Milkman likes Hagar at first, but then he says she's he calls her she's the third beer. She's not the first one, which you're really grateful to suck down, or the second one that kind of comes on the heels of the of the first. The third one that you just drink because it's there. Yep. I'm p- totally paraphrasing. And I remember reading that and going oh my God,
0: like, <laughs> right. And you know what's such a sad thing It is, but also too, it's something that's so true of women always sort of feeling sometimes like they're the third beer, you know, and yeah. so, which almost makes it. it's like a cautionary tale in some ways where you're like women, if you think you're the third beer, get out of the way because you're someone else's <laughs> first beer, like get out, <laughs> don't be anyone's third beer, you know? Yeah. Um, Yes, I think that all of those books that you just mentioned are excellent. I think that a a very excellent companion piece that we should put on the website is um – Bell Hooks essay uh, "Penis is Passion." Um, it's a great, great essay. Um, it is. I mean, Bell Hooks was basically my like my feminist of choice when I was going through my gender and women's studies degree. I just loved everything she wrote, everything she had to say. Um, I even have children's books that she's that she wrote that I gave my kids. I just love her. Um, but uh, she does a whole thing about sort of taking back the the notion of penis being this punisher or anything else and really reframing it in a way that doesn't feel like it's some kind of, you know, sword or anything else. I mean, it's just a great, great (laughs) essay. Um, And it, and I think it's such a great companion piece to what Toni Morrison does in that book is um, just to try and get you around the notion of like deep love and how you can sort of get, you know, connect in and in a different way or how you can react to it and, and all of those different things. So there's your companion piece. That, That's good. Yeah. How about? Okay. So my yes, I'm going to round us out, and then we're going to wrap up. Um, And I'm going to round us out in this like sort of embarrassing one. But I felt like I could, I would be very, very remiss not to put uh, the story of O on my list of things that were important um, for me at the time that I read them, and important for me sexually and I should caveat this was saying that I absurdly read the story of O when I was 14 and for those of you who don't know the story of O it it was I, I guess what they call it is sort of the 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 very first uh literary BDSM book uh not that it not that it was but sort of that had hit the mainstream um most people in the erotic romance world or the BDSM world know about the story of O, because it, it came out, you know, in I think the 60s. And it was, you know, shocking at the time and all these diff- different things about it. Um, and it's pretty hardcore. It's hardcore BDSM, but it's written in this really sort of literary way. Um, and what makes it super interesting, or what made it really interesting for to me at the time was two things that were going on in that. Um, I, the the book itself is, is interesting to read now in comparison to modern-day BDSM because there's no contracts or conversations about safe words or consent or anything like that. Um, the story is uh, complicated because you can see that she is consenting to these things. But what's fascinating about it is that, the, that she says maybe um, – I don't know, maybe four sentences allowed in the whole book. Um, It's really interesting um, because when I read it at the time, um, and I think Carrie, you and I have talked about this, or I've talked about this in my V word essay, but the idea about having a voice around your own sexuality was always a little baffling to me um, because I wasn't, you know, advocating for my own orgasms. I was, you know, I at one point was having a lot of unprotected sex because I wasn't advocating for my own you know people using condoms or being safe with me or any of those things um and Uh, This was a really interesting thing for me to see in the story of, oh, because here I am thinking like, well, are you, did you agree to this? Did you want this? But I don't think that at the time I was necessarily thinking that because I thought, I felt certain that she did want all of it. Um, And I mean, this goes all over the map. I mean, there's like gang banging and um, all sorts of manners of BDSM. There's labial piercing. And at one point she's branded. Um, she, you know, there's female, female sex. I mean, it really runs the gambit in a lot of ways. Um, but never uses like really dirty words, which is fascinating in itself too. (laughs) Um, I mean, she would just say like, you know, I was penetrated through both sides. And like, she would say it that way. She wouldn't be like, you know, he, you know, he fucked me in the ass. Like that Histurgeon, wouldn't even, yeah, yeah, no, not even, not even that. No, no. It trembled. was just yeah. like, no, okay. like, yeah, nothing like that. I mean, super interesting. Um, okay. Can I ask you two questions? Um, no, I have to finish this one thing I want to well, say about it first Okay, and then okay, you can okay, ask okay. me questions. Um, but the thing about it that I felt felt was important for me at the time was that I was, um, very interested as a 14-year-old, when I read it, I was very interested in the idea of someone keeping me or someone protecting me in a way. And that is why I think that book was really important to me because um, I was unprotected and felt long-term unprotected. And I was sexually unprotected in a lot of many ways when I was younger. Um, And so I felt like, it was almost like when i read it i thought oh but look at he this guy is keeping her he's keeping her um like he she he's doing all manners of things that i don't know that i would be on board for but look at he, how much he was like very devoted in this way to the point that he would brand her and all of that and there was something in my own mind that um i mean i would say it's the same thing about people who, um, can grapple with rape fantasy is this idea of how do you re, um, configure your own trauma in a way that can make it feel somehow better. And for some reason, I think that book for me was a way of where I, it it was shortly after that, that I first even talked about being sexually assaulted. Um, so I feel like there was something about that book that, um, Allowed me to say what had happened to me, but also formed this idea of that you could be, um, that you could have all this damaging stuff that had happened to you and someone would still want you, if that makes sense. So, she, all this stuff had happened to her, you know, like all this stuff does happen to her. She's shared, she's branded, she's got her labia pierced, and still at the very end, she has a sign where, uh, she. I it was shortly after she's branded where she says to the guy, and it's like one of her only sentences where she says, "You know, would you do all of this? Do you do you do you feel the same way about me that you would do anything that you would be marked, and all of these other things just to have me, to keep me?" And he said, "Yes." And so then she burns him with a cigarette, and it makes like a little O on his arm, on his hand. <laughs>
1: Ooh, yeah. I've never read this book. I, know. I That's why I have questions. Okay, hit me. Okay, well, all right. So this is an easy, like, yes or no. Do you think that the story of O is sort of the antecedent to Fifty Shades of Grey, that it's kind of fulfilling the same? A uh, slot, if you will, as uh, Fifty Shades of Grey is for a lot of of readers now.
0: Uh, I would say yes, but here's what I would say: I would say if you took uh, the story of O and Twilight, and you had just read those two things together, and then you said, "I'm going to write a book," and that's what you would get, right? So, it, you know, obviously, <laughs> like I cannot d- not acknowledge Twilight's influence on what t- Fifty Shades of Grey was. But I mean, the very first scene, O is taken to a red room. Yes. Yes, I would say that that, that is today. Okay. Yes. Well, and, and here's
1: the other thing. So you were talking about like, oh, I made mistakes. I, I wasn't protecting myself. And I was thinking kind of how in the same way that black boys are not allowed to make mistakes when it comes to police, Right? Like they can't do, they can't be sassy or black people at all. You know, they can't say one shitty thing or do one false move because the consequences are huge. I think also girls making sexual mistakes is. They are punished for it, not only, you know, in the moment, but they're punished for it in the court of public opinion as well. Like, that is so dumb. How could you have had sex without a condom with someone you didn't know? Or why were you having sex with someone who was so much older? Don't you understand, you know, uh, consent laws and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like this idea of a woman just being floridly transgressive, I think this this is like a long two part question why are we allowed to have open fantasies about every other topic but sex we're allowed to think that we could be president or astronauts or ballerinas or whatever the hell but <laughs> when it comes to having this really vivid uh, elaborate sexual fantasies it's like this thing that makes everyone lose their mind is it because it's typically women being transgressive
0: in a way that it may be that's a to? good question and also too I mean if you think about sort of you know I, I also would add best of American erotica to this if you think about this plus story of O like these are all a lot of these are sexual fantasy stuff there's voyeurism there's a lot of things that would be sort of piquing women's interest and um, but saying that out loud I think is very uncomfortable comfortable for women. I think even women among women. I mean, you and I aside, because we we always have these conversations. But um, <laughs> a, a lot of women, I think that if I said that at my book club, they would be like, "Ooh, are you telling us about this?" You know, and and probably anyone right. that they that you could say, "Oh, I you know this is what my goal is, or this is what I'm I aspire to, or this is what I'm interested in," and people get a little pearl clutchy about it. And I don't know if it's because you know you're talking about bedroom stuff. I don't know. That's a really good question or even to acknowledge that, um, you could have sort of a kinky fantasy. I think that's one of the things that Susie Bright's trying really hard to do is to say, you know, when we talk about these things out loud, they become way less powerful. They don't, you know, they're not dirty. They're not whatever. They just are what they are. You know, it's just an interest that you have. And and why is this a big deal? And I think part of it is because you're you're strapped with this. Women in particular are strapped with this shamey kind of side to them. If you say like, oh, I'm kind of interested in my husband tying me up or, you know, this different things like there's sort of this pause where everyone's like, Ooh, you know, and what's interesting <laughs> to me is that the, in the exact same way, there's a pause when you disclose rape and it, I can't not acknowledge that these two are somehow Um, both linked is, is that, you know, and not linked because they're obviously two different things, but in the same way that if I, if I'm in a room and, and I mention that I'm a rape survivor, there's always sort of this pause, this awkward, "Hmm." and, 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 and it's not like I would necessarily say like, oh yeah, like last night, you know, X happened with Julio. But at the same time, even if you were talking about it among girls, I think there's always sort of this awkwardness around it. And I'm not sure why. I really don't know. I mean, you and I having that big, um, juicy female ejaculation conversation, I was thinking even after we got off the phone about that, I thought, oh, I wonder if anyone else I know would have that conversation with me.
1: You know, I don't know. I mean, it... I, I refuse to feel that I am weird, although I accept the fact that maybe I am a little weird because most people are like sitting there tittering into their Chardonnay instead of actually talking about it. But And I feel incredibly vanilla and boring, I mean, this cishet white lady who's married, you know, like I, I'm not doing anything that interesting. But I also think that like people, how do we expect to accept people's different sexual Uh, identities, if we can't even talk about the, like, boring pedestrian... Socially endorsed ones.
0: <laughs> I know that's exactly right. That's the th- same thing. I mean, I, I, it's really interesting if you ever, um, and we should probably wrap this up soon. But if yeah. you ever get into the world of, like, um, I mean, for as an editor, I've done a lot of a fair amount of research on fet life, and if you ever get into that world, just the language around all of it is quite a bit different. There, it's a lot less pearl clutchy. It's it's just very. um is I, I would say almost like normalized and it, it's a weird thing to make fetish fetishism become really pedestrian, but it really is. It's a lot of logistical stuff like, you know, spanking workshops and all these different things. That's just like, well, yeah, if you miss last week's spanking workshop, there's going to be, a re- <laughs> you know, like, and I'm like, yeah, it's right. Spanking workshop, you know, and, and I think that sometimes I will drop that, that, kind of conversation in just to, I mean, not even to make people uncomfortable, but to make them know it's okay to have those conversations.
1: Well, and also because I'm bored. I mean, most of the things that people talk about who are married mothers and homeowners are kind of boring. And, um, you know, I think that the other part is we're talking about being afraid of thoughts and the damage thoughts can do. And I'm not saying thoughts aren't, can't be damaging or dangerous. I'm just saying that, you know, we're not, we're, we're actually afraid of, of words on a page. We're afraid of thoughts. And I just get really uncomfortable about that. I'm like, why? Let's uh, Mm. dig deep into what that's all about. And And hash it out. Yeah. 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 Okay. We should wrap up, right? Yes, we definitely should. Okay. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's show. We're so happy to have had an entire year of the Oral History podcast. Can you believe that? The whole year, shirt. yay! <laughs> um, so, thank you to all of our listeners for your feedback
0: and your book recommendations, and your emails, and your love. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, you know, and thanks to Booklist for being our wonderful sponsor, and to Andrew Carr for all the technical support. You have been yes. excellent. Thank you, Andrew Carr. You are and instrumental. You He's our third Letting pig. me
1: invade your office, you know, once a month to do this and record this because I don't have any of this fancy equipment. Um, we hope you have a lovely holiday and a new year and that you spend it with people or books that you love.
0: Until 2016, remember, sex and books are two things that are better when you talk about them.
1: Bye. Bye.